Well, good afternoon, and it's another happy hour at Culture Uncorked, and it's the panel talks. Today, we'll be talking about being people first, and it will build business back. And so, I'm so delighted to have you here. I'm getting some feedback again. Are you guys getting that feedback? Yeah, it's come back a little bit. Not at our end, but we can hear it when you're talking. But Yeah, yeah. something to do oh, with my... Mm. Okay, well, anyways, I'll, Lauren, I'll let you, so I would like to start uh, to talk a little bit about yourselves, and so I'm going to start with you, Hilton, while I try to fix my microphone. Go for it, Hilton. Sure, happy. So good afternoon, everyone. I, I must tell you, it's 5.30 in the afternoon here in Toronto. And uh, nothing says 5.30 like a glass of single malt scotch. So <laughs> slanger and slanger to everybody out there. Uh, my name is Hilton Barber. I'm a VP of marketing at a company called Cognitive, but also a um, long-term consultant in the area of culture and change management. And uh, always delighted to spend time with both Lisa and Lauren, and particularly to talk about today's topic, uh, about being people first and building business back. I think the irony for me is any business that isn't people first, I struggle to understand how they've achieved to any success thus far. But I can't think of anything more critical in 2021 than refocusing energy to the people inside our buildings. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. As always, Lisa, thank you so much for bringing us together on this. Absolutely. And it's a delight. And my microphone is fixed. Hallelujah. There we go. Amen. Right. Amen. Amen. And let's have a toast to that. Lauren, you got your drink? No, you know why? It's 2.30 here, and, I, after the, and uh, I'm in the Pacific side, and I have a, two more meetings after this. So I'm, I reluctantly am passing, but I'm just vicariously living through both of you. <laughs> um, and, uh, gosh, it's kind of – it really hurts when I see those beautiful vineyards that in, uh, in full bloom out there. So uh, – it's uh, they're they just got uh, as a matter of, they just got pruned. Ours just got pruned the other day, so they start pruning the vineyards here in the Okanagan in uh, in January. So it's uh, the world's in front of us. But of course, you know, I um, had a chance to meet Hilton uh, through this world of uh, uh, people that influence culture and um, in in the most positive way. And Hilton's had this credible kind of networking kind of um, impact on people, frankly, around the world. So uh, I'm also kind of consider myself a culture strategist and a leadership junkie. I am uh, committed to advancing uh, organizations um, through uh, people and culture. And, um, you know, I've had a chance to do that uh, in a number of different capacities. And right now I'm doing it uh, both as a, as a, a teaching, uh, teaching and MBA programs and executive programs and doing some consultant and co-founding and being part of a company called Belongify and doing some additional culture consult, uh, uh, consulting around culture work. So yeah, I'm fired up to continue to talk about it all the time. It's all I do. It's what I drink and it's my scotch. Um, and uh, I genuinely mean it. I, it's my, uh, it's my, it's what I think about do all the time. It sounds like a little bit imbalanced, but it's uh it's true. So, yeah, let's kick it around. Where are we? Congratulations on uh, us surviving 2020. Here we are to 2021. Hilton, you wrote a phenomenal leadership letter that inspired a lot of people that that put it on the table and said, 
let's let's be serious. 21, uh, 2021 is going to be every bit as challenging as 2020. There's a little bit more of a glimmer of, uh, of, of, of sparkle at the end of it around from a, from a COVID point of view that we might get to. But there's lots of stuff going on. But anyway, happy happier New Year to everybody. Absolutely. And Lisa, you've got some questions that you're going to pop I do. So I, um, first of all, you know, this question was raised uh, in the new app called Clubhouse. And, and uh, I don't know, Hilton, if, if you've had the privy of hopping in there yet. I haven't found you in there, so I'm going to say no. But this Clubhouse, it's an audio uh, application for those of you who are listening who don't know what it is. So it's like virtual rooms, but audio driven. And, you know, you have a stage, and you get to invite people to stage and you have conversations and so forth. And it's a really great tool. But the reason that I brought it up was because when I was in a room yesterday, we were talking about unapologetic leadership. And the topic of belonging came up and more importantly about how we need to be very people first orientated uh, moving into 2021. And how does that look from an unapologetic leadership standpoint? And so my first question to both of you is, what do you believe unapologetic leadership looks like in 2021? So Lauren? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of a term. Honestly, Lisa, I have to tell you, as much as I pride myself in kind of being out there and listening to stuff, it's a term that I haven't spent much time with. Um, I, I, you know, whether, I don't know if it refers to authenticity or because I think it, it could be whatever your definition of it is. And that's what we discovered, right? Everybody thought of unapologetic leadership a little bit differently. Yeah, because one of the great things about leaders is that they know when to and how to apologize. And so that's kind of the subtext that I'm trying to sort of, sort of bouncing around. Mm -hmm. I, I do find it uh, just friggin', and I want to use a different word, uh, incredible that in 2021, we are still debating whether it's people first or not. Whether we, I just talked to a leader the other day about investing in people and I, it was like a, a circa 1968, the question was, I'm wondering if it's too soft. And we yes, still Lauren, have- Let me interrupt you for a second. Joey uh, is just tuning in and has a comment about that for you. He says he loves the focus on people and it should have been our initial from the beginning, but this is a huge positive to come for the challenging year. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, it's 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 the beginning. It's the beginning, and always will beginning. Joey, I believe that. It's I mean, I mean when we when this gets off the table because everybody knows it's got to it's where we all have to start. We will have made some progress, and I'm just realizing. I continually am amazed around how far in some places we still have to go around leaders somehow not apologizing about investing in people and somehow thinking it's in competition with both customer and financial results. I just don't get it. And, you know, that's my, I own that to be a better communicator about that, but we have still some work. What do you think, Hilton? Well, I, I must be honest, when I hear the term uh, unapologetic leader, I have a very visceral and polarizing response to it much in the same way that I had a polarizing response to that excellent book, Radical Candor, that came out several years ago. Because I think all of us, 
either listening in or have participated with leadership, you, you might suggest this is me being unapologetic and this is my radical candor. And at the, and at the risk of using um, last week's events in the United States, that's an unapologetic leader. That's a leader that is driven by radical candor or radical something. And again, I, I, I often worry, and I use that word deliberately, I often worry and I'm concerned when phrases like unapologetic leadership or radical candor are used as a get-out-of-jail-free card for leaders who don't change their posture and just sit back and say, I'm just being radical. Yeah. I'm just being candid. Yeah. I'm being I'm unapologetically me. Yeah. So then, and I think that's a get out of jail free card that I would be really concerned to give leaders without a strong, strong portion about authenticity, about empathy, and about compassion for the recipients of their leadership and their candor. Yeah, I completely agree with that perspective. Yeah. I have yeah. the same polarizing re reaction to it. And what I worry about sometimes that. When people take, and I love the work of people like Brene Brown and talk about being more vulnerable and all those things are important. But some, the end with that is sometimes if it gets played out into say, I can do and say whatever I want to because, you know, I need to be an unapologetic leader. I mean, that is not, frankly, um, uh, very both practical, realistic and not very helpful. And so, um, yeah. Okay, so we have, we've got John on right now, and Aaron, thank you for joining us today um, on Facebook. We stream to multiple streams uh, for Culture Uncorked. So then my question to you is when, let's dive into this, this term of unapologetic leadership a little bit further, because when does it become required by a leader to not apologize for the way that they are leading, when they are leading people first, and you have team members who don't believe that you're leading by people first philosophy. When do, when do you have to apologize or when don't you have to apologize? And how does that look? My, my observation is, and I don't wanna oversimplify this, that when you have really truly genuine leaders, and that people around you know that you deeply care about them, deeply care, and about the purpose of the institution, and care about them and 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 their and others that you deeply care about those that you have been privileged to lead. You can be clumsy and awkward, and but generally, if people believe your heart's in the right place, they're very forgiving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, forgiving because you're not going to be perfect. We talk about great, not perfect leaders. So people are enormous. When people, when people, uh, I think, start to become critical and appropriately skeptical is when they see the bullshit. They see the lips and the feet don't move at the same time or yeah. that it's interpreted by and large that people are interpreted to parrot political uh, politically attractive uh, terms and, and views and don't genuinely uh, deliver it. And so we're, you know, we, we often think that we can uh, fool people. We can't, it's very, people 
are so we're so transparent, really, even if we're not, people yeah. can see it. And once that as that trust is lost, well, it's pretty it's difficult to 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 gather it back. But if you're genuine and you really deeply care, man, you've got there's a fair amount of room. Well, in my response on, on this panel or discussion was really truly about if you're showing up as yourself each and every day as the leader, you don't need to apologize for being you. You have to apologize when you don't show up as yourself, when you're not truly yourself in the moment or in, in the multiple of moments that when you're leading the team, that's when an apology is required. Otherwise, you should never have to be unapologetic. Yeah. Well, if Lisa, if I build on that and, you know, I think the, the, other, the other consideration that, that, that perhaps gets lost in this conversation is the notion that all leaders need to be equally cut from the same cloth. And I might suggest that different organizations at different times need different leaders, much yeah. like countries at different times need different leaders. Winston Churchill was great to lead the UK during the Second World War. He was immediately canned the minute the war ended because he was seen as the wrong type of leader for a post-war uh, post UK. And I might suggest if you look either at GE and the succession of leaders that they've had, any major organization, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, the type of leader you are at the time in an organization's history can be profoundly different. I might suggest that some people will appreciate working with Elon Musk and other people will think that that would be the third ring of hell. The same thing with somebody like Andy Grove or Jeff Bezos. And again, I, I, I come back to something that Lorne said, which I think is absolutely critical. We talked about the need for leadership consistency. And that consistency is absolutely critical because that consistency communicates to your people, you can have confidence in what I say. Because today I won't say red and tomorrow I'll say green. I will be red. I will lead like this. I will lead in this manner. I think we look to that from our leaders, a degree of predictability, a, predict, a degree of certainty. And then the choice is ours. Is that somebody we will follow or somebody we will leave? But again, I think the notion of all leaders need to be warm and fuzzy and hug their people I think does a disservice to the leaders. It does a disservice to the organizations they have to lead at the time they have to lead them. So I think that context has to bear, bear into this conversation. Yeah, would 100% agree. Okay, Lauren, have any additional thoughts before we move on to our very first question? You know, I, I, um, I do think that, um, uh, you know, that that leadership is such the, the word. I mean, how long would it, we would live the rest of our lives tend to lies over, just get to get through the Google search on the word leader. And you've got a, and I, I don't want to make this political because I want to be very careful, but you've got uh, someone down south, uh, if you're a Canadian, if you're looking that way, I'm both an American and a Canadian, uh, and that had 75 million people vote for him. So you'd have to argue that from a general definition of leader, uh, meets the character, meets the qualification. When you get 75 million people that stand up and want to do things, that does not mean 
that uh, that is now a separate issue around whether you agree with the purpose and the character of that particular leader. That's a whole separate. That's a whole separate kind of kind of a thing. When I'm getting down and I talk about 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 leading from people first, I genuinely I, I I do make some assumptions that it advances humankind in some ways overall. That there's a goodness about it from my own frankly, obviously, perspective and judgment. So that doesn't fit with everybody. But that a, a leader advances someone to people towards a purpose that has a genuine value to it. And people feel that way. Obviously, it's the judgment of those people who want a part of it. And then deeply cares about the people that are there towards contributing to that. To me, those those uh, that's just but character uh character to me is is complementary and second to that it's absolutely vital mm -hmm. and there's a judgment there around what you stand for mm -hmm. uh like i mean you know some people wouldn't work for jeff bezos if you gave him a billion dollars agreed yeah and and lauren i think i think inherent in the com in the comment you've just made is Leadership, leadership is in the eye of the follower, if you will. You know, who I, who I choose to consider a great leader. And again, I imagine all of us could look back on our careers and think there were people I followed at certain times because at that time in my life, what I needed from leaders were different from what I would need in leaders today. And again, I think, you know, that, that, that very porous level between leading, leading a country, leading a team, leading a sports team, leading an organization, or if I may, leading a family mm -hmm. require different muscles and different interactions and different character. But again, I also think the recipient is not let off the hook in terms of anointing that leader. I trust you. I believe you. I believe you have my best interest at heart. And I think, Lorne, that's what you're talking about. Is if the audience feels you have their best interest at heart, there is a tremendous, there is very little that you will not be able to lead them to. And I might suggest North Korea or even early Soviet Russia is another example where us in the West would go, I do not understand. But for those populations, it made tremendous sense. And they did follow those leaders while we were scratching our heads. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, you see that if you take it right down to the narrowest, uh, smallest kind of components, sometimes you see that you go, you know, you, you hear the stories about people that work for Stephen Jobs and got berated up and down the elevator. But if you ask them if they would do it again, in order to learn design and to learn sort of this notion of the things that you learn at Apple, they wouldn't change that for, they would do it again. Uh, and and so yeah, it's a very interesting combination. The I, one little quick story is that when I when I, uh, I was applying for the chief, when I, well invited to apply for the chief people officer job at um, ATB Financial, I was interviewed by the chairman, mm -hmm. and I almost lost the job over breakfast at the Hotel McDonald overlooking the North Saskatchewan at seven o'clock in the morning because he said to me. If you're going to be the chief people officer. Now, this is the first time I've met the chairman. Formerly the president of Goodyear, sort of a Goodyear set of all of um, 
fountain tire across Canada. Mm -hmm. Crusty, uh, smart, uh, 15 years being involved in the board of ATB. And he says to me, if you had to make a choice, people, customers, or shareholders, what would you pick first? And, and this is an interview, mm -hmm. but I think I'm going to be real clever. And I give him a little bit of an answer like, because I'm, I'm thinking, shit, is he asking as the chair, as the shareholder? Is he at, like, the, what does he want? You know, like, mm -hmm. and instead of answering from my heart, I kind of gave him this, all three are important at the same time. And he kind of looked me in the eye and he goes, well, if you don't believe it's people first, you can't be the chief people officer at ATB. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, crap. How do I recover from this? And, and you know, and, I, and he was so dedicated. I mean, so committed to it. He was right. He was 100% right. And, and I waffled. So, Lauren, can I ask you something? So in that moment, now in retrospect, looking back, were you, you know, I know you well enough, and so does Hilton know that your answer today would have been people first all day long. My answer then should have been people first. But yeah, but so I, gave answer, I gave him a political answer, not a genuine answer. Yeah, and so why why do you believe that to be that that you did that? Like, what? Why do you believe that you answered in that way? Be well, you know what? This I probably need a tooth trained psychologist to probably fully <laughs> answer that question well enough. And, and fear, uh, yeah. trying to read the room, scotch, <laughs> uh, uh, trying to find, trying to say the right thing instead of do the right thing. Um, those are beautiful moments and lessons. I mean, fortunately, yeah. he believed in enough that what I was saying that he could tip his hat to Dave and say it's your call, mm -hmm. and Dave, you know, and believed in me because that's where my heart was. But yeah. I'm just saying that. That was a real, like, I mean, that was an, I, I'll never, ever answer any differently ever again, because that's what I believe. But, you know, I didn't have, you know, it's, what it taught me is about sometime feeling like you've got to answer in political ways than really saying what you deeply and genuinely believe. And, and it doesn't always, that doesn't serve anybody any well, certainly not, so not yourself. No. So, Lauren, picking up on that, and again, I think, Lisa, coming back to the, you know, one of the earlier things you'd said at the start of this call, how do we end up in organizations where leaders don't say that as the very first thing when they get up in the morning? Mm -hmm. My people are the most critical thing. I think Lauren yeah. is a beautiful example of even the most deeply held conviction by one of the most passionate advocates for people I've ever met. We just talked about how it's not that difficult to slip into a politically correct answer mm -hmm. or an answer where your conviction is can be and can be quite difficult. And again, yeah. I think it's easy for us, you know, sitting outside those moments to draw, you know, to lambaste lawn and say, what do you mean? I can't believe that was your answer. Where the truth is, I think this happens to executives around the world every minute of every day. 
I don't think it just happens to executives, though, Hilton. I think that it happens in everyday life and every single moment of the life, right? Like whether it's with the family, you know, I always say, and I don't know if I ever said this to you, Lauren, but, you know, politicians start out with the best intentions and end up corrupt anyways. And, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, they're convicted like Lauren was, but then other factors come into play and you lose the sense of who you are to try to just belong. Yeah, well, you know, the, when you think about it, um, the look the the one of the reasons is that um, you know the it, that 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 make, will make it easier not to have to waffle or to on that answering that question is because that sequence of people, customers, and shareholders yeah. towards a purpose. I mean, when you look at the data behind it, the science behind it. And we've evolved to the point where we realize that genuinely that is a winning long-term sustainable formula. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it easier. The, the, the part of it though, is that you've got to have that deeply held conviction. And because I think if you're going to get into a situation where if you, that's your conviction and you're going to be ending up debating everything around that order going forward, it's going to complicate your life and make it a pretty miserable one. If you want to do a people strategy and you want to do something, for example, around, uh, you know, onboarding people a certain kind of way and someone asks you the question around, well, you know, um, you know, give me the business case around how that's going to drive results. I mean, and your life is going to be around that all the time. I mean, that doesn't mean you shouldn't say you shouldn't justify the amount of money you need to invest in it, right? I mean, uh, we're talking about things but i'm just saying when you start to have to justify everything and start to now who am i talking to am i or am i talking to a someone who's i have to talk to from financial first, first and you're trying to you can't you can't you can't be authentic you can never stay in front of, you forget who you're talking to and you end up kind of twisting yourself into a pretzel okay so or, let me ask you this this is a story hilton go ahead and then I'll, I, no, I was gonna ask lauren perhaps a very uh blunt and binary question but I'm, I'm i'm quite intrigued by the by this which is maybe a very simplistic view that the world is filled with two types of people those who like neil diamond and those who don't <laughs> and, then, and then perhaps more importantly those who see people inside their organization as the only sustainable accelerant of success or merely an asset to be utilized and casually thrown aside. Yeah, because and I think- I wonder, I wonder if people genuinely fall into one or the other end. And if you fall into the former, you struggle to deal with people in the latter and vice versa. One of the giveaways, language-wise, and I've been bugging, uh, and even, I'm going to poke at you, Lisa, a little bit, because it, it, it's it's often often well intended, but meant as a, it becomes a throwaway. When you start to hear leaders say, "My people are people," and use possession, you start to realize that unintentionally, often they have translated into considering people as a transaction widget in their business. Mm -hmm. Because they themselves are people in the business. Yeah. Yeah. It's like somehow when I become a director or a VP, then it's my people or our people. 
And I and, and it's a it's small thing in some ways, and it's subtle, and it's sometimes it's I don't want to overstate that. But I just, you know, I always try to nudge people back and go, look, we're all people here. It's a question around how we want ourselves to be treated versus what how we want everybody, how we're gonna benevolently treat everybody else. And that's where I think it starts to get a little bit like, you know, the unwashed versus the, you know, the and it's like, wait a minute. We got this effed up. Mm -hmm. We're all people here trying to make our optimum contribution towards a desired future state and purpose, some greater good. And we're, we've got this incredible, imperfect human being that all of us are. They're trying to do our best to make it happen. So what are the conditions to have that accelerate and flourish in mm -hmm. our full imperfect way? And we are we now know enough that there's some science and some ways to and some things to help us. But at the end of the day, we're a bunch of human beings just trying to do our best to go find our way forward. Anyway, that's, I'm on, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be drinking right now. Well, Lorne, look, Lorne, I, 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 I think that it, that is an incredible tell. You know, if we were playing a game of corporate poker, that would be a wonderful tell to say, <laughs> do I do it? Are my people an asset? Well, if you hear language like that, it probably consider it's probably an individual who consider them a disposable asset to be utilized and casually thrown away. Yeah, so I, think there's a, I think there's a lovely tell in, in 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 that articulation you've just used. So thank you for that. Point. You know what? When I hear sometimes when I hear people say, "Hey, people are our most important asset," I just want to go throw up. I want to go and just crumple something up and just fire it across the table because I go that feels like one of those things out of a 1982 Harvard Business Review. It feels transactional. It feels transactional rather than relationship-driven. It is very often very transactional. Yeah. And, and that's the way we, you know, and or we hear phrases like, it's just business. Really? It's just business? I mean, it's, you know, I mean... Um, Anyway, so yeah, I, and I think those are kind of language that becomes really important for all of us. And trust me, I've got a long ways to go on all this, all this, every bit of it. But I, I've become much more um, introspective around how this translates into my deep heart about what I really believe. Which, by the way, here's one thing that I think we should all be careful saying, no results, no jobs. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think where we've got lost is somehow because I can stand up and people say, you know, Lauren is really a people first driven leader, which I hope they do say that at the same time, somehow that they think, well, that means he's soft, can't get results, and he's not really a true business leader. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, anyway. No, well, so, Lauren, I think again, you know, always eloquent and insightful in equal doses, mate. But I do think there, there is a intriguing point that you make. And again, for anybody working in the culture space, I think this is a this is an ongoing battle where the unfortunate uh, baggage there's some baggage attached to the culture word yeah. that uh, you know, as as I would as I would suggest for. For many business leaders, they think it means, you know, free muffins, you know, beer card Fridays and bloody yeah. beanbags in the office rather, rather than 
to your point, one of the most powerful accelerants of the delivery of business success. And that the minute that people off the cuff give it that fluffy notion of, well, it's a soft thing, it's soft, soft, soft. I genuinely think it's more a reflection of their own inadequacy in dealing with this than it is a recognition that it isn't, it, it may feel soft, but it's one of the hardest things in the world to do. And it is one of the things most directly related to business success. So if you think that you get a free pass because you got the word culture associated, I think you're in the wrong organization and you're definitely using the wrong definition. Culture yeah. is an accelerant of your business results. Yeah. End of sentence. You know, one of the things when I teach my Harvard class and I and I go through what I describe with these ten, what we call the ten elements. Um, the very first element I talk about is being people first and customer success. And I I tell people sometime in a way that kind of really makes them scratch their head. I go, if I had only one place to work on whether a company was really people first and customer obsessed, I would not start at their HR system. I would not stop in at the HR policy. I would eventually, eventually. But the, first, but the first place I would look is how they've designed the work that people do. Mm-hmm. So if you know, you've got some people go, we are really a people first company, and you go, okay, what's your lousiest and most horrible, painful process, work process, business process, and they describe it, and I go, how long has it been like that? Oh, 10 years. Then you're not people first. How could you be people first? Because typically in those situations, you burn through people like 60-watt old old light bulbs. It's, it's, it's easy to tell companies who aren't people first by their turnover rate, by their churn rate. right? And, and particularly at some jobs. Yeah. The answer yeah. they had is that we will let people do lousy jobs and they'll either quit on the job or they'll try and use it as an entry-level position to move somewhere else, but we don't really ever change that job. It's unsafe or it's unsavory or it's boring, it's miserable, it gives everybody a lousy experience, but you know what? We'll just find someone who needs the job, is desperate enough to get in there for it, and we'll just burn them out and we'll go to the HR people and say, you know what? You haven't got the right people for me. Let's keep finding other people that want to do that. Anyway, to me, that's the first place that I would look, and that really tells you something about how deeply much people care about people. So, so Lauren, let me, let, me, let me throw something at you then in, in the spirit of that. And again, uh, I, I appreciate this may be a rather uh, obnoxious question. But the no, you know, truth of the matter is there's part of me that says the first indication of how people-centric your organization is is to ask for a copy of the employee handbook. Mm-hmm. And if the policy handbook is longer than 30 pages, it suggests that you use policy as a way of shielding the business from, from the talent of your people. If you've got 950 rules for how you get your expenses paid, you're not, you either don't trust your people, you've hired the wrong people, or you use policy to hide from the reality of your people. So there's a part of me that says, if you've got a telephone book and that's your policy handbook, you are not people-centric. So for those people that are 
on the line and watching this, I'd love to get their perspective as well of, do they feel that that's an accurate judgment to make? You know, I, I don't know if I'm proud to say this or ashamed to say it. I was chief people officer of 5,000 person. I never, I don't know if we had an employee handbook or not. I don't, I don't care. I don't know. Uh, one of the stories that I'll tell you, and I love Dave Mowat so much, the CEO of, um, this gave me an indication around, around, uh, this was a really a lesson for me. We decided that we were going to let people work from anywhere back in about 2013. That was early days for that. That was really early days. So I got all these leaders together. We talked about the principle of it. We got some insight from a couple of people who had worked that way, and uh, including one of the divisions that wealth management people that deserve the credit for sparking this at ATB. And we decided we were going to do it ubiquitously company-wide. Dave Moe and I, Chief People Officer, we were going to write the policy for it. It took us a year of arguing, he and I, to write the policy, which we never got done. And by the time a year got by, it was over. It was already done. <laughs> fully implemented, fully done, fully, we figured it out. Mm -hmm. Policy, yeah, we had a couple things around, you know, do you buy Hilton's desk or not? Or do you, you know, uh, do you reimburse him for a cell phone? We, we sorted through a couple of things. By and large, we didn't have to. We just figured it out. Mm -hmm. And I was going, wow. That, that, you know, that was a lesson. So if you ever want a, something you want to get done, agree on it, then make your CEO and CEO CPO try and figure out the problem. <laughs> yeah. done before it's over. Well, so, so Lauren, just picking up on that, uh, I, you know, and, and these stories, these urban myths, these legends that perpetuate, you know, the circles that we swim in, you know, that wonderful story of Mary Barra at General Motors who said, you know, our dress, our dress code policy is dress appropriately. And certainly, you know, and took a, a, a dress policy from 20 pages down to two words. Yeah. These become, these become urban myths. You know, the Netflix example of just, you know, if you have talent density and high-performing teams, the last thing you need to do is put 100 pages of policy in front of them. That's an inhibitor to their talent, not an accelerant. I mean, I'm all, I find I am surprised more often that when these stories surface, anybody who reads it looks at it and goes, that's common sense. Yeah, and you know what's good? It's the common sense part that always astounds me. You go, that's common sense isn't it yeah and you know it's contextual right because when reed hastings said we don't have a dress policy and so far no one has come to work naked <laughs> you know at, at netflix you get that now if you're going into a into a healthcare care yeah. unit that's different you don't say well wear what you want yeah yeah yeah, that's different, though, right? And it's different, and it's very contextual, right? I mean, in some cases, then you need to be highly prescriptive, right? You've got to say the mask has got to squeeze over the nose, and if you're not, you're at risk and you're in danger, right? So, I mean, so, but generally, the idea is that that's the motivation behind it is someone's safety and well-being, the patients, and the, the not because you're trying to have control over the human being, to go and have treat them like children, those are very different different uh, mindsets. 
But Lauren, if I may, those are contextually people first mindset. They are. They are. They are still. They are still people first. They, to your point, they are contextual. I am sure the people who operated Chernobyl nuclear reactor, there are probably a bunch of, of, of safety systems and culture within that that needed significant review that allowed the person looking at the dial to be the one who raised the alarm, not the supervisor sitting in his home 10 miles away from the reactor. Yeah. Again, I think you're, I, I, an excellent point well made. You can be people first, but you should always be context. The context in which those people need to operate is a critical factor. Your yeah. people first is either it's about safety or unlocking their creativity or ensuring their, ensuring their well-being. You know that because that's the business you're in. Well, it's about giving them the right platform to excel, right? I was working on a on the railway when I was a, a sectionman. My grandfather and my uncle were immigrants that had worked on the railway, like many people. And when you lift track, and so I was, I started as a 16-year-old, and then through university, I was fortunate enough to keep working on the railway. But I, one of my, it's a very unsafe place to be if you're not careful. Yeah. And I remember we used to go on the track on a speeder, a little, a uh, little. Uh, 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 just a little um, a motorized cart with all our tools and lift track. But if you're in multiple track and you get off that speeder on the outside on the wrong kind of way and you're not watching and you've got a train coming at 80 miles an hour on the left-hand side, you can die. Mm -hmm. And I got off the thing on the wrong way. And I remember a foreman grabbing me by the neck, by, by, not, not, not meanly, but grabbing me by the thing and about this far away from my face and just ripping me a good one. You know what? I think he was people first. Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent about me then. And if he'd have been cavalier about it, and go, oh, well, you know, anything goes. Well, you know, I mean, he he didn't exactly go through the Dale Carnegie course of communication. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, he probably also didn't want the paperwork either. But that's a serious well, paperwork issue. On a workers' compensation issue. It's kind of like when you when you first start your career, you get paid for what you do, right? And then as you work your way up, you actually get paid for who you are and how you treat people. Mm -hmm. right? I think there's some truth to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so Lisa, you 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 had a couple of words you wanted to throw at us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to end end the show because we're uh, you know four four sixteen. We've got fifteen minutes left. So I have two. I have one question. Mm -hmm. So if you believe your ability to succeed is based on the quality of the people in your life, how do you surround yourself? with the right people. Because I think I think if we're gonna be people first and the idea behind the show is that's what's gonna build business back, how do we find, how do we surround ourselves with the same type of people, the same beliefs, the same purpose, the same values? Lauren? So, um so it's a tricky question in this way. Like, um, 
So part of it is uh, the self-accountability of me. And, and again, I want to answer this in a way that's not uh, naive. However, I, I mostly work from the premise that everybody around me are people that I want to be around, that I've got something to learn from. And I, and I, and I mean that I, I really try and live that way. I, I don't do that perfectly, trust me, but I really try and live that way. I think I've got an obligation, and it's such a joy to find out the people that I happen to be around and to, and to, and to get the, this wonderful benefit of learning from them and, and having a chance to really uh, add, serve them as well. And so you end up then by nature surrounding yourself with people that you want to be with because they're there like, like but what know. happens though lauren but what happens if you're you get hired um chief chief people officer to right. a new team that you don't know who they are and you walk into the into the room yeah. and they're not your peeps. well they're not they're not following and you've got to fix it this is i don't this is not a shameless plug because it's out of print but yeah. uh, but when I did research around what I think the value of people that really had an impact, that got things done, that inspired others, uh, I found that when I bucketed all their behavior, they were in three areas. This is what my research found. One was that they were enormously self-accountable. So those people are so unique because they start from the premise, what can I do about it? Yeah. Not from the premise, I'm going to get Hilton or Lisa to do something about it. The first question they ask is, this is the situation. I would like it to be like this. What can I do about it? So they're very self-accountable. And like, and they're, they rarely think of themselves as victims under any circumstance. The very first position is, what can I do? About it? The second thing is that they are so enormously respectful. So even if someone jumps in their car and wants to squeegee their window and they haven't asked them, they never treat someone like that with disdain or disrespect. They may ask them not to do it. They may not give them any money, but they treat whoever it is with deep respect. They're always listening and trying to go, what can I learn from that? That's a human being. I'm going to respect that. I'm going to work from the premise of respect. And the third thing is that they're highly abundant. They're generous. They're all on on the work around um, Adam Grant did around that came way after this book, which is around they were givers. They are, they were, they're givers. So I look for those three values and I'm highly attracted to them regardless of, I hope they come in every shape, form, size, dimension, gender, you name it. But I look for people that tend to work that way because that's how I find I have the most joy when I work with people like that. That's a little longer winded, but that's how I think. So then, so then let me ask you, like Stan says, uh, massive action. So I do believe, you know, one of the characters that I would look for is, are, can they execute? Because if they're always in the place of ideation and they can never execute on anything, it's great that they got all these ideas, but they're not taking action. So where does action play a role? So my, leader, my leadership experience around that is that you've got people with all kinds of dimensions. Like some people are great, a great, I like, so the, the leadership privilege there is to connect that idea person with the, someone who's the, the doer. Yeah. And all of a sudden you've got three out of, you know, three. Uh, uh, so it's, 
everybody, unless they are frankly not well for whatever reason, has got something to massively offer. If we can find just those switches sometimes that are in the way, and I don't mean that in a manipulative way, I mean in a condition that allows them to do it. They're the ones. So, so Lisa, look, I, I mean, I, I, I will pick up with, from what Lauren said, and I, and I think there's an important distinction. I think the distinction is what Lauren is talking about is a belief system and an attitude or orientation to the world. That's got nothing to do with your tactical proficiency at opening an, an Excel document or writing a strategy piece or directing a film or writing a memo or ordering muffins for a meeting. That's got nothing to do with this. The three elements that Lorne is talking about is what is your orientation to the world? Are you someone who gives or someone who takes? Are you someone who is is respectful and sees value in those around you, or are you not? And are you somebody who takes accountability or passes off accountability and ownership to others? Those are an orientation to the world. If people have those three things, then you add on their practical proficiency at other things and say, I want you to be those three things and a really great orderer of muffins because I need a muffin orderer on my team. And if you don't know how to order muffins, but you have those other three things, I think research would suggest, and we see this in hiring all the time, if you hire for, if you hire for attitude, you can teach people pretty much anything except you know, microbiology and neurosurgery. If they have the right orientation, and I adore the three dimensions that Lorne talked about because I think those people naturally through generosity and through that notion of self-accountability will take the time to learn what's needed to move the thing forward. They will take it as a personal crusade and stand hallelujah. Pay someone to hold you accountable. Isn't that what accountability is? You take ownership for your stuff. Yeah. That's well, I, often say, I often say that uh, actions um, trump words, right? Like, so you know, we can say a thousand times that we are going to be this way, but until we actually behave that way, we don't really know it to be true. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz, so you know, well-known leading Silicon Valley uh, I, uh, venture firm. You know, they're in a lot of the big ones, Facebook, you name it. He's written that book, and it's the way they assess companies too. It's that you are what you do. Yeah. That your your that's what you are. That's what your company is. You are what you do. Uh, and yeah. and but Lorna, if I may, that is a truism that is a timeless truism i will imagine that if you went back and read socrates and plato they would have a very similar thing to say what comes out of your mouth is irrelevant in comparison to what you do with your action yeah you know talk is cheap talk is cheap we've heard that since we were children and you know that's why the stoics 
and like Marcus Aurelius, everybody's reading their work again, or they have over the last few years again, because yeah. there's so much historical wisdom out of us, you know, that kind of self-reflection. And, you know, it's like, you know, that, and at, at the more trivial kind of way, it's, you know, everything you learn in kindergarten kind of thing is what, you know, or whatever. Those are the, the part that is, um, the, 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 the part that just adds so much kind of, I guess, makes me so curious about it all is that, that we have to navigate that through just our own imperfection as human beings, our own fears and our all those things around us to be wanting to be loved and to frankly, wanting to wanting to be able to, you know, wanting to survive, wanting to thrive, wanting to, and all those just human things around us, you know, causes us to behave sometimes not at our best. And that's just who we are. Well, and sometimes behavior isn't, it's an indi indication of uh, the moment rather than actual who the person is. Because sometimes we've got outside influence and people have things happening in their life that cause them to derail from their natural behavior tendencies, right? Well, and so I think it's our job as a leader to, to determine whether or not it's actual and natural behavior that's occurring or something that's being adapted based on an environment that's happening. I defy any situation anybody who, who would be a parent trying to work from home with no private workplace, having two toddlers coming in and out of your day all day long, how you might not snap at somebody or not <laughs> say something that would not be quote desired or in your character, but you would yeah. I mean yeah. so how not so, Lauren, I'm I'm going to pick up on an, on on two on something you just said and something Lisa said. I think one one is I I I genuinely believe that often we hold our leaders up to some higher ideal and some higher omnipotence and sort of non-human DC Marvel comic. Yeah, you know, it's a pedestal. It's a it's it's a ridiculous. It's a ridiculous level of perfection that minimizes the fact that they're as human as the rest of us. And I think we do I think we do ourselves a disservice when we put our leaders on that pedestal. And I think unfortunately we we force them to carry an unnecessary and unjust weight uh, for them not to be the people that they are. I think the second thing, and I will do this as a shameless plug for a dear friend in New Zealand, but there is an excellent, is an excellent connection of mine, a guy called Jeremy Dean, who I would recommend anybody on this call looks up on LinkedIn, and his work around the emotional culture deck is some spectacular work intended to uncover the emotions in a team, in a business, in an organization. Because to learn your point, if we don't acknowledge that emotions drive our behaviors, whether we're working from home or working in a high-pressure work environment, again, we're, we're creating this unnatural thing that work is one thing and I'm a different person at home. Yeah. That's a fallacy as well. So, again, I would encourage folks to think, and again, shameless plug, Jeremy Dean, the emotional culture deck, but that is just an astute piece of work that would help many people um, 
re rationalize and rectify that gap between emotion and our workplace. It's yeah. real and it has an impact. Tackle it, identify it, get it done. That's a really great tip. Thanks very much. Hi, Larry. And, um, Hi, Larry. Yeah. You know, I want to I want to uh, end the show because we're getting close to the end of their time and we're going to end up going over our hour a little bit. But I want to end the show with asking you one simple word. And what does that mean to you when it's very specific to people? OK, so Hilton, I'm going to start with you. Please don't. OK. <laughs> I'm going to. Magnetism. Magnetism. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, to me, I, I, I consider that the same thing as I consider charisma. It's one of the, it's one of those words like being funny. Don't tell me that you're funny. Show me. And again, I would put magnetism and charisma in one of those magical, in uh, intangible about human and about uh, human nature. I think magnetic magnetic people do draw people to them but i would suggest you can be magnetic and an evil person just as easily as you can be magnetic and a wonderful person so again you know i think magnetism obviously means you your ability to draw people to you to your cause to your personality to your goal to wherever you're setting up to be but i would caution that I heard Joseph Stalin was kind of magnetic as well. So I would caution that not all magnetism is a good thing. Well, and, and I think before Lauren, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of more time to think about this, but I would challenge you on that. I think magnetism could possibly attract people to you, but it's your charisma that keeps them with you. Yeah, there's something there. Um, look, I, I don't know where everything's energy. Um, there's some physics involved in this, and I don't want to take the good and evil part of it. I completely agree with uh, Hilton. Uh, you know, the worst characters in history have, were magnetic in some ways, obviously. But generally, that that there's a there's a there's an attractiveness there that that attracts that people want to be part of. And um, you know, if you can if 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 um, you can put it to uh, advancing people and humans, what a what a gift that is it may be cultivated and developed but generally i think people are drawn to people and maybe it kind of just wraps up with the you know that we're maybe i don't mean we're tired of hearing it the Maya Angelou comment is that people will always remember how you made them feel yeah it's oh. true though it, it but it's so true and it's relevant and stands the test of time Help Lisa, always fun hanging out with you. Our going zooping by. I wish I had the scotch. I probably need a bottle after things I said on this show. But anyway, thank you guys. Always a pleasure, mate. And Lisa, thank you so much. You you know you were the magnetism that brought this this group together. So you know I applaud you for that. I thank you for that. And you know for everybody who attended today, uh, you'll see Lisa's put up the link for that emotional culture deck I referenced earlier. So. Yeah. My very best to each and everyone. Thank you for joining in. Thank yeah. you, Hilton. Thank you, Lauren. And we'll see you next month, yeah. Hilton, on the second Wednesday. Uh, and for people who don't know, we at the panel, we usually have Patrick Sells with us, but unfortunately couldn't make us with us today. But we meet every second Wednesday of the month at 3.30 
this Mountain Standard Time, 5.30 Pacific Standard Time. And you can catch us live or you can watch the replay play on the Belongify YouTube channel. Thank you to Culture Uncorked and we'll see you next week. See you. Bye. Bye.